The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river, Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this is, uh, as we said earlier, this is the first Sunday after Epiphany, and Epiphany is the celebration. Perhaps you may know what that word means. It means an unveiling or a manifestation. And in Epiphany, we celebrate the glorification or uh, manifestation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God to both the nation of Israel as well as to the Gentiles. Uh, Last year, we celebrated the arrival of the Magi at the uh, home of of Mary and and Joseph to visit the Christ child. Uh, Although in many traditional nativity scenes, the Magi show up at the manger, but it's pretty clear, I think, from tradition as well as the scriptural account that that the Magi show up a little bit after that night, possibly. Um, But we certainly celebrate it as a different event from Christmas in a particular way, that the Magi were representatives of the Gentile nations. And so the Magi coming to see the Christ child, following his star, coming from the, uh, from the east, tracking westward to Jerusalem, uh, sorry, to Bethlehem, towards Israel, uh, these are the nations coming to Christ to see his glory, to see his beauty. And that is one of the ways that we celebrate Epiphany. The other way that we celebrate Epiphany is his manifestation as the Son of God to Israel. And this takes place uh, primarily uh, here at his baptism. Uh, This is to be celebrated as a continuing or another season, but uh, antecedent, or sorry, uh, subsequent to uh, Christmas. It it comes after, but yet it's still part of a similar idea in that this is a festive day, this is a day of celebration, and uh, this is 
This is a day in which we glory in what God has done in history through his son. The difference between Christianity and all other faiths is that we believe God became man in the person of Jesus Christ and came into this world to alleviate our condition of sin, to to remedy our malady, our, our spiritual sickness, which prevented us from following God. This is a unique thing to Christianity. No other faith or religion believes that not only was God in the flesh, but also that God in the flesh demonstrated himself and proclaimed himself to be God, and not only that, made it possible for humans to be united to God. This is a a wonderful day, and without celebrating Epiphany, we cannot rightly understand the uh, narrative arc or the trajectory line of Christ's life. This is the entrance of Christ into uh, his ministry, and this takes place through uh, what we read today in Mark 1. So uh, this is what we celebrate. Uh, If you were here at Christmas Eve, we talked about the dedication at the temple by which uh, Jesus Christ is demonstrated as uh, God's son, or the Messiah at least, uh, to two people, Simeon and Anna. Now, Simeon and Anna are two faithful servants of Yahweh, and they see Jesus Christ. Uh, they recognize that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God to be the one who sits on the throne of his father, David. That's what Christ means. It means anointed of God for a particular role. And the particular role when speaking of the Messiah is that he would save their pe- uh, his people from their sins. And so Simeon and Anna are, if you imagine it, uh, narratively speaking, they are like a new Adam and Eve in that they are the first ones to behold the Christ child, and in that they become the, the new humanity. That is, those from Israel who are brought out of just uh, following the law or attempting to uh, do righteousness by the law in Israel's waywardness that she encounters year after year, and they, they are brought into Uh, a realization of God's new humanity, his new work on the earth. Of course, all the patriarchs and all the faithful saints from the Old Testament were not justified by the law. That is not what we teach. Uh, That's not what the scripture teaches. They were justified by faith, but that faith was looked forward to. Simeon and Anna become these representatives of a faith that has been manifested. It has become real. It is no longer a faith that we are waiting for. It is a faith that's come. And that's what Christianity uh, celebrates when we celebrate the day of Epiphany. So in that context, in that uh, scenario of God manifesting his son, Jesus Christ, to not only the Gentiles, but, but here today, most primarily to his people, Israel, I want to look at seven things. And this is, normally we, we talk about three or four things. So each bullet point today is going to be really quick. Uh, so if you uh, concentrate, or maybe if you're taking notes, take brief notes, because I'll move quickly. I want to look at seven things. First, Isaiah's Christology that he demonstrates at the beginning of this chapter. I think it's important to see how even Isaiah is speaking about the fact that God is going to come in the flesh. I want to look at John the Baptist's ministry. I want to look at the baptism of water and spirit that John introduces the people of Israel to. I want to look at the rending of heaven that we see take place in, in, uh, in this chapter. If you don't know what rending means, it just means to tear. Uh, I had somebody the other day, they thought I said renting. It's not renting heaven, it's rending heaven. Uh, it means to tear asunder, to use some 19th or 20th century language. 
uh, I want to look at the Trinitarian Christianity that's demonstrated in this chapter because it is a, although all of the Old Covenant and everything that God has done in the past before this uh, account took place, although everything was done in such a way as to point forward to the nature of God in his Trinitarian existence, that is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons in one being, uh, that is uh, shined in this chapter. That is brought to a head. It is it is presented in a way that is undeniable. And in that uh, in that scene here, I want to see. I want I want you to see how that forms the basis of our understanding of God's nature and His persons. Uh, I want to look at the victory in the wilderness that Jesus makes uh, through uh, being tempted by Satan as uh, being done as contrasted with Israel's loss. And then finally, I want to encourage you to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ. This message is to encourage you that you would walk, not only remembering your baptism of water, but also your baptism of the Spirit, that you have been brought into the life of the Holy Spirit of God. So um, at the beginning here, Isaiah is interpreted by Mark. Mark writes, and he references a passage from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which we'll look at in a second, and he specifically interprets it according to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every promise that God made to Israel. Now, Hopefully by now, that phrase is becoming annoyingly repetitive for you. The fulfillment of everything that God promised to Israel. Jesus Christ is demonstrated by Mark's quotation of Isaiah as being the one who God was speaking uh, about. In verse 2, it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I this is God speaking, will send my messenger before your face and will prepare your way. Okay, so God is speaking, he's giving a message to Isaiah, and then Isaiah, hearing this message, then says, and uh, the quote here is verse 3, uh, this is also referencing Micah and, and a few other minor prophets, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, this is the messenger that God is sending before, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Unfortunately, some Bibles, especially uh, Bibles that are newer English translations, when they take a quotation from the Old Testament where you see the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that does not mean Adonai. That means Yahweh. And and, and the way that you get there, it takes a little while, but you get from Yahweh to Yehovah to Jehovah, and, and then it becomes encased in English translations as the Tetragrammaton. Tetra meaning four, grammaton means stroke. Uh, the name of God, that is four characters, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And so when he is quoting here, the messenger is saying, prepare the way of Yahweh. And who is coming? It says, God is, God is speaking to this one. Before, behold, I will send my messenger. And the messenger will say what? Prepare, uh, uh, prepare the way of the Lord, the way of Yahweh. The one who is speaking is clearly the almighty Yahweh, if you look at the context of Isaiah 40. And that almighty declares that he will send his messenger to speak about this person. And that the person before whom the messenger goes, think about it, uh, you know, imagine the, you know, kind of a graph in your mind, if you want, the person before whom the messenger goes and the person to whom Yahweh Almighty is speaking are one in the same. 
He said, God is declaring, I will send my messenger before you, and the messenger will say, prepare the way of Yahweh. This is a beautiful Christology. And what it means is that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is declaring Jesus Christ is Yahweh. When we sing uh, that song that we, we love to sing at this church, He is Yahweh, that is what we are declaring, is Jesus Christ is the Rose of Sharon, spoken of uh, in the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. The righteous son, he is Yahweh. That's what Isaiah declares and Mark, the apostle, beautifully uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, demonstrates this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's veiled reference that in the person of God, God declares, God the Father declares to his son, I will, I will send a messenger. And who does Mark say that messenger is? He then just says, John appeared in verse four. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah's prophecy shows God's plan. God himself is going to come. There's problems in the land. There's problems in humanity. God is going to come himself, and he's going to send a messenger. Jesus Christ is none other than Yahweh in the flesh. That is Isaiah's vision of Christ in Isaiah 40. Of course, there's other uh, understandings of Christ, that is, he's the suffering servant. Uh, those are not to be dismissed, but it must be stated clearly that Isaiah himself teaches that Yahweh will send someone who will be called Yahweh. John is Yahweh's messenger, therefore, and he's come to raise every valley and to lower every mountain. This is what it means to make the paths of the Lord straight so that the Lord can come into the land. He comes bringing a message of repentance and he goes away from the people and he leaves the camp. He moves outside the camp and he goes and stands in the wilderness. And his arrival in the wilderness is a prophetic testimony of the condition of the nation at the time. He stands off in a in a uh, dry place. He leaves the cities, he leaves the comfort, and he goes into a dry place. Not only is John the Baptist's location indicative of the spiritual situation that Israel is taking place, uh, that Israel is encountering, but also his garb, his the things that he wears are prophetic. Uh, whenever belts are referenced in the scripture, it's speaking of the priests or the prophets, specifically here, the prophets, and also his wildness, that is, he eats locusts and wild honey. Now, we could get into the symbolism about that, but, but what he is demonstrating by his garb is that he is the culmination of the prophetic line of the Old Covenant scriptures. John the Baptist is the final testimony against the spiritual dryness of God's people. God calls his people into a land that's flowing of milk and honey, and yet he has nothing to eat but locusts and wild honey. And so John the Baptist here is calling them out into the wilderness. Just as Yahweh calls Israel out of Egypt, so also God is calling Israel out of the national Israel into the true Israel. And he starts to do this by John the Baptist calling people out of the cities. It says that in verse 5, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. It's a, it's a major Old Testament narrative of those who uh, God wishes to work through must be brought out of the city. Think of every prophet of old. He's always called away from the people to a season of preparation by God, especially we can remember Moses and the various patriarchs, uh, Jacob especially. He spends 14 years working for Laban. Abraham spends years wandering through the Chaldean lands. And God brings him out so that he would call his people out of their sin and into a good place, even though in the natural it looks like a bad place, the wilderness. 
So God is calling his people out, and he is bringing them out into the wilderness. Think of also uh, in this idea of in the wilderness, why does Christ uh, not die in Jerusalem? It says that he had to suffer outside the gate. Why is that? Because God always punishes the one who is uh, the atonement outside of the city so that the city might not be destroyed in the judgment. So uh, John the Baptist here is outside the city and he is speaking prophetically against Israel's comfort and complacency in her spiritual dryness. Now he goes out and he goes into the wilderness and yet he speaks concerning a particular message of baptism and repentance. Though John has this wonderful ministry, he points forward to Christ. He does not draw people to himself. This isn't johnthebaptist.com. This is, I am preparing the way of the Lord. And so John here is proclaiming a message of, of baptism, uh, a message of repentance, and yet this, this is going somewhere. This isn't about John the Baptist. This is not just another prophet who is going to raise up followers for himself. This is a prophet who is pointing to the Messiah. Verse 7, he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not fit I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. This is an amazing declaration. And we see earlier Isaiah's Christology, Isaiah's vision of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Son of God. Here, John the Baptist does the exact same thing. He says that he is mightier than I. Now, that may not mean, that may not leap off the page for you, but in Hebrew understanding, in Hebrew culture, honor is given to the elder, there are, in, in fact, laws in the Old Covenant that if you don't stand up when an elder walks into the room, uh, you know, let, let's say it's a dinner or it's a meeting and you're at someone's house, if an elder comes into the room, you're supposed to stand in the presence of elders. Why? Because they have gone before you and they have been invested by God with some sort of authority. And so John here is older than Jesus. He says, he is mightier than I and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. That's the job of a servant. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not allowed to be the servant of this guy. Now, I don't know about you. I've liked a lot of people in life. I have had role models. I've had people who were mentors. I've had teachers who I love, and I just you know pester to get time to spend with them. But I've never met anyone that I thought, I can't take off his shoe. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not allowed to touch him. I'm not allowed to approach him, even as the lowliest servant possible, someone who's in charge of taking care of dirty feet that have walked through animal matter and dust and rocks and glass and weeds and dirt and streams that are muddy. This is what John's saying. He's saying, I'm not allowed to touch him. I'm, I'm not even allowed to, uh, in terms of a, a, a heart motivation, I'm not even worthy to come and, and stoop down beneath him. And yet, John the Baptist has a great role in the unveiling of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not worthy, and he also declares that Jesus existed before him, uh, before himself. The implication in this biblical thought is, though Christ is biologically younger than John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is his cousin, we know that clearly from Scripture. Elizabeth is pregnant first, then Mary. We saw that in our celebrations of Christmas. The implication is that Christ is older than John the Baptist, though not biologically. He is a pre-existing one, and this is not. Uh, this has never been ex uh, experienced in Israel's history. 
There is one who is younger and yet is worthy of far greater glory. John the Baptist testifies of the eternality of Jesus Christ. So we see in Isaiah's Christology a vision that Jesus is Yahweh. What does Jesus say when he arrives? He says, I and the Father are one. They're one in in nature. They are not one in person, but they are one in nature. They are one in essence. There is no division between them. So Isaiah shows us that Jesus is Yahweh. John the Baptist shows us that Jesus is eternally existing, even though he comes as a man. Now, this is beautiful, but uh, it gets better. As our creed teaches, there is only one baptism, and that baptism is constituent of two parts. There's, there's water baptism, and there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And those are two elements of the same baptism. Uh, there is one baptism, and these are two sides of the coin, if you will. John here introduces us to that baptism. He says in verse 4 that his baptism is a baptism of repentance, and it accomplishes something. It is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we as Christians do not believe that when you go down into the water, that you are regenerated by God. As in, someone can be baptized, and they can actually be someone who will rebel against God for the rest of their life. They will, uh, they will be demonstrated as reprobate. They will be demonstrated as a hater of God. So you can't just go around to all the various malls and high schools and start, you know, super soakering people and make them Christian. That is not what we believe in baptism. We believe that the faithful participant in baptism, whether covered by the faith of their parents or the faith of that person, that that faithful baptism is an entrance into the community of God. Just as circumcision in the Old Testament was the entrance into the, the nation of Israel, so also baptism is the entrance into the people of God. What is John doing? He's, he's standing in the wilderness. He's calling people out of Israel and into a new group. And so, John the Baptist is saying, this is bringing you into what? The forgiveness of sins. Now, this baptism, although it is beautiful, is not the only side of the coin, as we spoke. The baptism of water, which accomplishes the forgiveness of sins, is not the only element in your baptism. Your baptism should also include a baptism of the Holy Spirit. This thing that God is doing is... Uh, is bring, he's, he's bringing up into uh, existence a new people, a realized new community. And we see this in the literary parallel. Just as Israel left Egypt, went through the waters, they went into the wilderness, leaving the wilderness to go into the promised land, they pass through waters again. The waters are divided, they go through the middle. The exact same thing happens in the new covenant. We all individually walk through the waters of baptism into the promised spiritual land that is the church, the kingdom of God, which are not identical, but they overlap quite a bit. If you've ever seen Venn diagrams, there's a wonderful intersection in the middle. Likewise, before anyone comes into the kingdom, they must be washed for the remission of sins. This is a kingdom in which you have been washed. But not only washed, there is another side to the baptism. You have been empowered. God makes a new Israel, one who will keep the law, not just from uh, trying to do it themselves, a law written on tablets of stone, but as Ezekiel says, the new covenant that God will make with the people of Israel is a covenant in which they will keep the law and the law will be written on hearts of flesh. So God is bringing about this new redeemed community 
And not only are they baptized via water or baptized in water, they're also baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is what John teaches. John introduces this. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says that Jesus Christ, the one who is mightier than he, he will bring you into the fullness of the baptism. It is not enough for you to accomplish external rituals which do not go beyond the thing that they signify. You must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You must be brought into the life of the Holy Spirit, which is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means. It means to be enveloped, to be surrounded by, to be clothed with, as the Old Covenant speaks of Gideon. It says Gideon was clothed with the Holy Spirit. He was clothed with zeal. This is what it means when John the Baptist, the most zealous and wild and extravagant and uh uh, quirky of all the prophets, when he's standing in the wilderness and he's burning like, like a, a blaze, sp- speaking prophetically against Israel's complacency, he says, the baptism that I bring you into, although your, your sins are washed away, that isn't enough. You must be empowered. You must be brought into the life of God, the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist invites us into this expectation. He says, there is one who's coming and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Though Christ is not guilty of any sin, as our high priest and our kinsman redeemer, he enters into baptism so as to be the federal head or the representative of all those who would be washed as new believers in the new covenant. So he does not, in getting getting water baptized, Christ is not having his sins removed. He is not having deficiency in his person removed by the waters of baptism. Rather, he is being baptized for two specific reasons, so that he would be manifested to Israel and that he would receive the Holy Spirit. And by receiving the Holy Spirit, he would be able to give it away. Verse uh, uh, 8 through 10, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now that's a summary statement. Don't you love how Mark writes? He's just like, you know, John showed up and then it says in verse 9, Jesus came. He doesn't give any explanation. He, he expects the other gospel writers to get it down. Uh, he is intending to say, this is the point why Jesus Jesus comes. In Jesus' coming, his coming begins with him being baptized so that all of Israel would see. Verse 10, and when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Uh, This is the great prayer that we pray every year in Advent. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's it's Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah is saying that things are so bad the, the priesthood has gone away. They've all become corrupted. The, the wine is cut off. The bread is cut off. The grain's cut off. That We can't even worship. All the sacrifices fail. The land is, is dry. And Isaiah's pro, uh, prayer to God, his intercession as a prophet for the people of God is, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what we celebrate in Christmas, right? God comes down. In the person of Jesus Christ, God comes. But in, a, in the day of Epiphany, what we celebrate today is another fulfillment that God rends the heavens and he comes down. This is where God demonstrates the, the worth and, and the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the one to receive uh, authority uh, and, and he is the one who we should begin to listen to. 
This is what God is doing. He's rending the heavens. Now, I don't know about you. I have never seen the heavens rent, uh, torn in two. Uh, But I imagine that it would be terrifying. Now, next time you're out at night, do this. Imagine just the sky being ripped apart for a second. Now, if you want to see it as clouds parting, if you want to see it as as stars moving away, or whatever you want to imagine it as, imagine what Mark is saying. There is something beautiful, glorious, mysterious that takes place. The heavens are split, and Jesus Christ is uh, demonstrated as God's Son. Through Christ's baptism, the Father unveils the Son to the people. This is God's demonstration. This is my Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The Christ's unveiling to Israel is apocalyptic in nature. It splits the sky. When we think of Revelation, when we think of the apocalypse, we think of what? The heavens being ripped apart. The prophets of old say that the Lord will roll back the sky as a scroll. This is what God is doing. He is fulfilling the promises given to the prophets of old that that he himself would tear apart the heavens. He says, once again, I will shake the heavens and the earth. God is establishing a new day in the nation, and he's establishing it for the purpose of showing his son. As Christ breaks through the waters, the heavens are torn open. The father and the son are are in perfect harmony here. Mark demonstrates this story, this narrative, this historical account as the foundation of his gospel's understanding of Trinitarian Christianity. And what I mean by Trinitarian Christianity is that God is one God, and yet in God, there are three persons. This is de- what designa- designates Christian, uh, Christian uh, religion, Christian faith as unique among the monotheistic religions on the earth. We do believe that there is one God. We are not polytheists. We do not worship separately God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, as if they are three gods. We worship one God, and that God has three persons. Now, if you ever have imagined how does God, how is there one being and yet three persons? Uh, you, you think to yourself, well, all I know is about humans. And, you know, there's one person and one being, one body. There's me, John Weiss, you, John Gray, uh, etc. To put in, insert your name there. You have one being and one person. Unless you're schizophrenic, then you should see a doctor. You still have one person. That's just... We won't get into that. Um, there is one person and one being. Yet we know from, from nature, we can observe beings that exist. A tree is a being. It's a thing. It lives. It, it uses resources. It multiplies. It grows. It consumes energy. It expels waste, which is beneficial to us in oxygen. Uh, and, and yet there is no person in a tree. We know this from our experience. So that provides us with the logical capacity to understand there can be a difference between being and the number of persons in that being. And God is demonstrated in this chapter as unique. There is no one like God existing as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and yet he is one. This is a divine mystery, which the Apostle Mark brings us uh, clearly And so it behooves us to look at what this shows. Every revelation of God comes, uh, uh, with every revelation of God comes along a demonstration of his character, his nature, and his heart. 
It says, and when he came up, speaking of Jesus, he came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, this does not mean that the Holy Spirit actually became a physical dove, although I think that's possible. It doesn't necessitate that. It just merely says that the Holy Spirit descends like a dove descends. He comes down and lands peacefully. Doves are symbols internationally of peace. They are symbols of uh, gentleness. They are symbols of patience. And so this dove comes, uh, whether it be a physical dove or just a metaphorical dove, and he comes down onto Jesus Christ. Christ is baptized in water, and then he is baptized in the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Who is the voice from heaven? It is certainly not the dove. It would sound like a squawk. It's a voice from heaven. And that voice from heaven is understood rightly to be the father. Why? He says, you are my beloved son. The Holy Spirit does not relate in the scriptures to Jesus Christ as my beloved son. Therefore, we know this, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God is not the father. And so we see also that this voice who speaks relates to the son as a son. And so we see that this voice must be a father. In this, in this way, we see three things. God the Father delights in his faithful son, and he bestows upon him the Holy Spirit. It says that the Spirit comes down from heaven, and then the voice comes. It's exactly like giving a gift at Christmas. You hand the gift to someone, and then you say, here's why I got it for you, or here's what I was thinking about when I, you know, like, I got you this new blender, and I knew that you wanted to, you know, blend things, or I... <laughs> I've, I've established this trust fund and I want you to go to college. Whatever the gift is, you explain the gift. God is therefore explaining why he's been given the Holy Spirit, as the book of Hebrews says. He's, uh, the book of Hebrews quotes various Psalms. I think it's Psalm 110. It says, uh, you have loved righteousness more than wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with what? The oil of gladness beyond all of your companions. And what God is saying to God the Son in that quotation is that Jesus Christ in his righteousness has pleased the Father, therefore he will be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit, which is referred to as the oil of gladness, beyond your companions or before your companions. So Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit in a way that no other person before this time had received him. Why does he do this? God the Son receives his headship over those the Father gives him and receives the Holy Spirit. He doesn't reject the Spirit. He is open to the Spirit. And so God here is giving his Son the Spirit for a particular gift, a particular role to dispense it on those who would come after him. And then finally, we see God the Spirit descending and remaining upon God the Son, clothing him with power. Jesus Christ walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. He does not walk in his divinity Although he remains divine, he does not exercise his divine omnipotent power in such a way as to discredit that he was truly one of us. In this fellowship that God has within himself in this chapter, we see love, we see honor, respect, yielding, obedience, honoring, re receiving, giving. This is a community. This is a, this is a fellowship. There's absolutely no hint of confusion, strife, discord, hate, envy, jealousy. Remember last week how we talked about the various gods of, of Greek mythology, how out, these primordial gods came out of chaos and all of these gods are at war with each other? Christianity is a wildly different set of, of doctrines. God in himself has a community 
by which he can truly love and give love and receive love. And therefore, love is not an abstract thing to God. It is his, himself. And in God's person, we see the reflection of the divine attributes. Through these accounts and others, which we'll see in the gospel later on in the year, we see the revelation of God's heart, nature, and character. It is not just circumstantial that these details are written in the gospel. They are to communicate to you the things of God. Not only is Christ the federal head of these people by water, he is also baptized with the Holy Spirit to bestow them with the Spirit. The reason Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit is so that he would be the baptizer. There is a torch transfer in a great marathon. John the Baptist receives the torch from all the prophets of old and hands it to Jesus Christ, and he becomes the one to bring this new humanity about. Just as the Israelites were tested by God in the wilderness, so also God sends his son into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted by the devil, not tempted by God, but tested by God. Why does God take the Israelites into the wilderness? It says, so that he would see whether it was in your heart to keep his laws or not. And yet Jesus Christ goes into the, to the wilderness to do the exact same thing. Unlike Israel, however, he succeeds. Israel spent a period of 40 years in the wilderness, and these are recapitulated, or if you want a simple word, they're replayed by Jesus Christ's 40 days in the wilderness. Unlike Israel, uh, Jesus emerges victorious. The Israelites grumble against God's word and they sin. They don't believe God's promises. Every time he gives them something from heaven, they're, they're merely, uh, their appetites are merely whetted for a minute, and then they go right back to grumbling. They, they do not build faith upon faith as we should in our lives when we see God intervene. We should build upon it faith by faith, passing, as Paul says, from glory to glory. But Jesus Christ here succeeds. He overcomes and rises up out of the wilderness and comes into the land. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, look at Mark's detail there. Why? Why was John arrested? Mark doesn't care. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ comes up out of the wilderness. John leaves the story. He exits stage left. Jesus Christ arrives on the scene and begins to go throughout all of Galilee and then Judea and all of the nation of Israel, executing a campaign against Satan, sickness, and sin. And Jesus Christ is like a new invading army. He's coming in to judge and clean up the land. Now, in that judgment, that judgment and its nature have changed. We, luckily, as Christians, do not believe that we should kill non-Christians. Although we saw God's demonstrated judgment against the Canaanites as a military campaign, that was because their sin was so sinful that there was no chance of remedy. There was no ability for even God himself to save those people. They had persisted in their wickedness for over 400 years, multiplying their whoredoms and idolatries, inventing gods after other gods and other gods, and also killing children, destroying the image of God, etc., etc. God uses those people in their sinfulness as a demonstration of judgment. This is what God does to those who do not come near to him. And yet, the nature of the gospel, the nature by which God judges sin in us, has changed completely. Jesus Christ 
comes and he brings a message of peace. He says that he comes to proclaim liberty to those who are captives, as we've been celebrating in Christmas, but also peace and the forgiveness of sins to those who have sins. Not a sword, although Jesus does bring a sword, but that sword is not a physical sword. Jesus comes and he preaches. He says, repent, change your ways, turn to me, and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the audacious idea that we can be remedied, we can be returned to God, the one from whom we have run, and yet it doesn't take anything on our effort. It's all done by God himself. Those who wish to walk in Jesus' steps are called to the repentance of baptism, both of water and the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? You, you know plainly what it means to repent before you're water baptized. If you've been baptized, you went through, hopefully you went through a baptism class, or if you were baptized as a child, hopefully your parents taught you these things. To repent uh, before baptism means to repent from your sins, to turn away from your uh, iniquities that you've committed. But to repent in, on the other side of the coin in receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to repent from attempting to justify yourself by, uh, before God by the flesh. This is why Paul uses the language of if you walk by the flesh versus if you walk by the spirit. The repentance which precedes the baptism of the spirit is the cessation of your effort to make yourself clean before God. That is what the baptism of the spirit dispenses upon you. And for us Christians who have been in this for a while, we tend to get dry from time to time. For those who are following him, you are called to walk as Jesus Christ walked, not to walk in your flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we celebrate in Epiphany. We celebrate not only God being demonstrated openly as the favored son who we should listen to, but also the favored son who receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that he can grant it to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely the remissions of sins, although that is vital and and cannot be excluded from the scenario, but also the power to live a new life, to live before God in righteousness, not by our effort, but by his effort, by his power. That is a doctrine also unique to Christianity. No other faith teaches that you should walk by a divine power. It all says that every single one of them say that you should attempt to complete God's law or the law of morality or the natural laws by your own effort, by your own uh, cleaning up of your act. This is what Christianity teaches. This is what the gospel says is that he will not abandon you. He hasn't done it, nor will he do it in the future. That is what our permanent hope is, is that we have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been baptized into the life of the Spirit of God by Jesus Christ himself, and that is merely the down payment. Paul teaches that if we have the down payment, we know that we have the house. This is a, this is a much better than a human mortgage. This is a sealed covenant which cannot be broken. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask you, Lord, that we would avoid every temptation to accomplish uh, New Year's resolutions in our own effort. We ask you, Lord, that you would cause not only New Year's resolutions, but everything in our life to be yielded to you, that we would begin to lay down our uh, swords, lay down our hammers, lay down our efforts, and that we would pick up the sword of your spirit, that we would walk in the power of your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, we do ask that you would give to us a faith which would see your son as the one who baptizes. And Lord, if, if there are people who are dry in this congregation, Lord, I pray that you would encourage them this week to ask from you that they would be baptized again in the Holy Spirit, that they would be revitalized, that, that they would bring their concerns, their worries, their failures to you, and that there would be a great exchange, your merit for their problems, your glory for their strife. Lord, we ask you that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and, and, and uh, knowledge. We ask, Lord, also that you would give us a spirit of supplication, that we would be so willing to ask things of you, that we would bring every cause, every concern before your throne. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.